HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in the rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sun in the air. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. My name is Souther Teague. My co-host, Damon Bolte, is out of town today. And frankly, I have no idea where he's at. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Dave, do you know where he's at? I don't. I, I'm pretty sure he mentioned it last week, but I, I can't for the life of me remember. Uh, I don't even remember him mentioning we it. We were drinking, so. We were drinking pretty heavily last week. Uh, I can't remember if he said where or what, but uh, but he's not here, so I assume he's out of town. Uh, no, we saw an email that says he's out of town. But we yeah, we know, confirmed. But we, we don't know where or why. But that's okay. I'm here, uh, and I've got several people in the studio with me today, and we're going to talk about uh, design. Um, i got Charlie Marshall from Park Office sitting in the studio. Welcome to the studio, Charlie. Thank you so much. Good to see you, buddy. Charlie's an old friend of mine. He's been uh, a regular at many bars that I've stood behind for about a decade now, and we have, we have sort of a, a, um, a milestone of proof on that, is that you used to sit at the bar in front of me at Rye, yep. and Rye, just this past week... Uh, hit their 10-year lease and, and ended up having to close. So we know that we've at least seen each other since the beginning of Ryan. That's 10 years. Damn. Did you realize that? No. Because I, I also used to remember hanging out next to you at a bar at Spite and Dival. Uh-huh. I think that's where we started you know, chatting and becoming friends. Yeah, the original uh, living room for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's back when you worked for Coca-Cola, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Another drink, but not, yeah. but not the kind we like the most here on the show. Also in the studio, I've got a couple friends just hanging out uh, that might chime in. Uh, we got Ross and Hannah from all the way over from London as well. So it's, um, I'm outnumbered by the Brits in the room today. Yeah, sorry about Welcome, that. Welcome, guys. Good to see you. They're not mic'd up necessarily, but they might chime in. Um, and normally, of course, on the show, we have uh, guests from all manner of uh, positions, uh, what we think of as you know more direct positions in, 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 in the sale and service of drinking. But you're more behind the scenes now but you yeah. haven't always been no uh so let's let's reel back the clock a little bit and get sort of a i don't want your whole cv but give me some history and then uh and then we'll talk about what it is you do now on the second half of the show sure but, but, but how do i how did you get into this <laughs> um the vague question uh yeah the vague question i got into this predominantly through my dad i i would say is the biggest i learned it from watching me. you dad yeah basically <laughs> um growing up my dad ran an engineering firm and i always assumed that that was what he'd always done that was his life uh, running this engineering firm and then he retired at about 10 and put all of his money into a brewery and i also realized that growing up not everyone in the uk not everyone's parents owned a vineyard um <laughs> and uh and then and then not everyone's parents also turned their basement into a uh, legally bonded warehouse by the UK equivalent of the ATF. Um, and that was when I realized that basically the engineering was a ruse to placate my mother when my sisters and I were kids, that my dad had a, uh, you know, a real sensible grown-up job. But it turned out that, um, you know, as I 
sat with him, played gin rummy, lost my pocket money um, as a 12, 13 year old, realizing that actually he'd spent most of his life in the trade. He uh, ran um, a wine importing business. Bristol is where I grew up in the UK, mm -hmm. which is quite famous for its connection to Bordeaux and sure. Bordeaux wines. Um, Bailey's being one of the still uh, Bailey's, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, Bristol Cream, uh, Bristol Cream Sherry. Um, uh, and the connection between Bristol and Bordeaux. My dad had been a wine importer going to Bordeaux, buying wines in, in bulk and then running uh, an off-license, like running a liquor store and then a chain of liquor stores in the UK and uh, in, in around the West Country. So there was the, always an influence of, uh, of I would say, the, uh, the hospitable part of the hospitality industry at sure. home. Um, the you know every Friday and hospitality every, was flowing yeah indeed, among other things indeed <laughs> um, so I had always enjoyed engineering as was one of uh, you know growing up with a dad with a big workshop uh, metal workshop and a, a wood workshop in the equivalent of a sort of Brooklyn uh, brownstone so the entire basement floor was full machine shop um, as well. Uh, alongside this uh, bonded warehouse for so the, you get the wine. The, you get the best set of Tinker Toys in, in, in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. There was booze and also really dangerous heavy <laughs> machinery uh, as a combination. Right. And, and, and Let's sneak a few nips and go work on the lathe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and parents who, well, my dad uh, calls his liquor cabinet the, the headache cabinet. There are two sections. There is the upper portion, which is the good stuff. And then there is the lower portion, which is things my dad buys on vacation, which are delicious at the time. Um, so, you know, Pisan Ambong and Amarula and all <laughs> yeah, those things. Exactly. My dad is half cut in South Africa with a bunch of friends being, this is delicious. So all of that stuff get, was put in the lower section. And basically from a relative, I'm the youngest of three, and from the relatively young age, Anything in the lower section of the headache cabinet was fair game, but if you touch the good whiskey, um, then you're in trouble. But you can drink as much blue curacao as you want, you know, go for it. Um, Wait, this isn't you having to nick it or steal it. This is your dad no, saying, no, no. that's like, fine. That's fine. From, yeah, I mean... I mean, there's different rules in the UK, I get it. Yeah, exactly. Different, different so, sensibility. Yes, very much so. I think that there is much more of a sensibility that um, we, we go <laughs> booze heavy first. Um, not that we're particularly good at dealing with it you know there's a whole load of issues around how licensing laws in the uk uh turn us into uh, sort of rabid drinkers <laughs> um but certainly growing up it was something that was part and parcel of how one entertains how one uh, uh is in inclusive with other people the number of sort of uh strays that came from uh different pubs or parties or things that my dad would be like well these people were coming through town and they've never been for an english meal so i brought them home this evening my mom would be like oh great thanks um but there is sure and i'm sure you and your siblings did the same thing too right absolutely if, if you, you know. if you guys had all this stuff in your house then yours was the house that that everybody wanted to come to exactly right? it was yeah so every single what's, uh, what's dad got in the headache right exactly uh, you find, was this the truth for you as well ross Ross from the UK as well. Yeah, first thing I remember drinking from my dad's cabinet, uh, half a bottle of Advocat. Advocat. That was very much bookshelf. <laughs> right. There was blue curacao in there, but I didn't think the combination would be great. But yeah, Advocat. Yeah. At least you had the means and wherewithal not to mix up curacao and Advocat. Advocat is basically like a bottled version of, of, uh, of a creamy eggnog. Yeah. For those who listen and don't know what that is. Yeah, boiled and pasteurized for uh, the grace of God. Yeah. Um, Avocat, which also it means like a lawyer, right? I think so. Avocado, an advocate. Yes. Yeah. Um. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty gross. Yeah. Um, Screw lawyers. But so, uh, <laughs> so uh, suddenly, you know, my dad retired from his uh, engineering firm, was bought out um, and had a pile of cash. Some friends of his had been trying to um, grow a small brewery. They were looking for investors. My dad suddenly who was a, my dad is a absolute workaholic, had become retired relatively young, spent about two and a half months ranging around the house, sort of snapping pencils. And uh, he also decided that was the perfect time to uh, give up smoking uh, as a chain smoker of some 30 something odd years. That was the moment he decided to become retired and uh, grouchy at the same time. But um, his uh, his requirements for the guys who were starting this brewery were that they have a venue to be able to sell in case 
there was no sales. You know, you've got to mm. be able to get rid of a perishable product. Um, so he said, we need to buy a pub and we need to own a pub within the portfolio of having the brewery as well as the pub. Um, the guys who op- who started the brewery were from um, a brewery called Smiles in Bristol, which is quite a famous microbrewery uh, that got bought out by Courage. And it became, I think that they, were, that they felt that there was a loss of the sort of go get them spirit and there was a lot of uh value engineering being brought into the brewing um so they were trying to sort of reset and do their own thing which is a a company called bath ales bath ales got bought out by a much bigger brewer last year called st austell i think 25 million quid somewhere there um but my dad's my dad encouraged them to have a venue to be able to sell their own product so they bought a, a pub and they grew in that manner um, they, the brewery grew, they added more pubs into the portfolio, they sold further and further, they started to bottle beer, um, and very randomly, when I first came to Brooklyn, I went into Spite and Dival, a uh, beer bar in uh, Williamsburg, sat down, and... On well the, known, it's been there forever. Indeed, indeed. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, this, how old are they now, actually? The, it, this was must have been 2003, and I think they 2002, and they'd been open for six months or something. Oh, okay. So it's so about that, that long. Right. Yeah, I've been bothering them the entire time. Um, And uh, on the list behind the bar was Bath Ales. And I was like, well, that's lovely, but it's impossible because we don't export. Uh, At that time, so growing up, um, I'd been given, you know, a broom and told to go and start sweeping up around the brewery. Got into working at the brewery in my summers on weekends, predominantly steam cleaning barrels, cleaning out the fermenter, um, you know, carrying... um, carrying things up and putting things into hoppers, uh, a lot of carrying and moving. And, you know, as a, I was 16 or something when I was working there. All my friends were like, you work at a brewery, that's amazing, we can have free beer. I'm like, yeah, but I work a shift which starts at 5.30 in the morning yeah. <laughs> to be able to barrel everything to get it onto the truck to get out. So, so, you're f- so you like and drink free beer. Yeah, f- <clears throat> first taste of beer, at, you know, straight after toothpaste at 5.45 in the morning, it's not... <laughs> It's suddenly, you know, all of those dreamy eyes. You know, I've always said, people, people, when I was a chef, people would say to me all the time, like, and even still when I'm, when I'm bartending, like, don't get me wrong, I do like what I do, but mm. it, I don't know if love what I do is the right word. Right. I love being around all that stuff, yeah. but suddenly you take this thing that you really love and you make it into your job. Right. And it takes a lot of the love right out of it. I think that's why I ran like, away. I love, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love sailing. Yeah. But if I had to sail every day to make rent, I don't think I'd love sailing as much. Right. Right, I want to go sailing without any construct. Yeah. So you ran away. You came to the United States. Uh, yeah. So I, I worked in uh, restaurants and then bars through college. I went to went to art school, which is the purview of every nice uh, middle class boy who doesn't know quite what the <laughs> hell he wants to do. Um, but it was an attempt. It was an attempt to mix the sort of uh, the world of craft and the world of engineering. In my head, it seemed like a, a good combination of the two. I did products, uh, product and furniture design and ended up more more than anything building spaces, uh, designing spaces. Um, set up a furniture firm with a high school friend of mine uh, at 21 or whatever we were because we walked out of design school and we didn't instantaneously become the CEOs of major international design firms. Right, right. Um, you were shocked by that, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, truly. Uh, you know, <laughs> you were, where was yeah. your promise of Seriously. a big giant office yeah, exactly. with a desk? Right. Why don't I get you know a, a room with a view and uh, you know to be in charge of much stuff? So people said, now you go and do an internship and you work for free. My friend uh, Tim and I said, well, that seems ridiculous. Why don't we just work for ourselves? Which, you know, is, you know, what happens when you're 21 <laughs> no 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 insight whatsoever no hubris um so <laughs> we we started a design firm and uh into the fray Brave yeah and crazy exactly um and we were designing spaces we were designing furniture we were designing product we were designing anything that anyone would also pay us to design um at the same time as that and throughout my time at college and throughout my time uh growing up i was always working at a variety, either pubs that were owned by the brewery or when I moved, uh, a pubs at college, opened a cocktail bar with my friend JP at college. Terrible idea. Great fun. Um, <laughs> what so year was that? It goes back, it goes back a bit. Yeah. Uh, it was back in the era when to do anything to do with free pour in the UK was nigh on impossible. So it was a combination of subdiffusion and predominantly bad drinks. Yeah. But fun. Sure. We did a lot of brightly colored drinks because, which 
and you know me, it's not as if I've gone that far away from <laughs> that kind of stupidity. But um, got the chance to come to the US and launch, uh, launch our design firm in the US at the Contemporary Furniture Fair um, and fell in love with New York. Managed to move myself to New York. My company went belly up almost instantaneously because, again, <laughs> early 20s. Uh, and found myself working at um, the Rockwell Group uh, in New York, which is a big you know, hospitality and design firm. Mm. They had a studio that was partially owned, half owned by Coca-Cola and half owned by the Rockwell Group. So it was that mix of them trying to bring um, the knowledge of the hospitality industry design section of you know how to create spectacle, how to create um, interesting, vibrant spaces with drama and dynamism. Right, uh, that are inviting and comfortable yeah. and... And how you match that with a brand and how you take some of those things that are normally very boring uh, within the brand world and you, you instill a level of consideration around hospitality and how those two things unite. Uh, and I was, you know, I think, so I worked at a Bass pub, a Bass-owned pub in the UK for a long time and I worked for Coca-Cola for a chunk of time. And I think as much as I have... Um, some reservations about big brands. I also think that they are extraordinary learning environments. Somebody else paid for me. Oh, sure, get, yeah. They've got the, the funding to, yeah. to for you to make some mistakes. Yeah, and, you know? and also, you know... And they're probably a little bit more uh, brave about it, you know? Right. If you're a young company and small and you don't have a lot of funds, you have to be very particular Absolutely. about how you spend that money. Absolutely, and having those... These guys you guys might know, be a little more risk takers. Right, you know, is it is it the sort of... The equivalent of the, uh, you know, is, is for some aspect are those big brands the medicis the sort of those grand benefactors they can be some of the good ones are um it feels like it goes in cycles but certainly it feels like those big brands have the when they have the stones to do it there is there is chunks of time when they can create really interesting really wonderful things sure like exponential growth yeah in in that arena yeah um and uh rockwell group is where i met my my business partner will prince uh who is the other uh, business partner I have in Park Office. And, and what is, uh, <clears throat> open us up to what Park Office does, and then we're going to pause for a second. Sure, so, sure. So what is Park Office? You, uh, that's where you're at right now. Yep, we run a, a design and architecture firm. Uh, we predominantly sort of do three three different things. We do um, architecture of spaces. Uh, we do uh, we bring technology into environments. So I went a weird route and went and worked for Google for a hot minute and some other stuff in, in that vein. Um, and we also work on uh, sort of much closer to product level or business level strategy for companies. P- tends to be in retail and hospitality design. Um, and so a, a chunk of that, uh, the, the idea being that we can talk to companies about a very initial idea, take it through how they might manifest that in um, more than one space, create a space for them and a set of guidelines for other design firms to work against. Um, when I, I always think it's a bit tough when you when you can see that w- just one person is churning out the seventeenth slightly interesting Starbucks or the 37th sure, yeah. the 54th yeah 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 uh, there's you've a squeezed point. all the yeah, yeah, you've exactly. squeezed all the, all the blood you can out of that turnip right so we try and make sure that we are giving people a set of guidelines to work against if they want to do this for another space that it isn't us because to be honest I don't want I you know it's a terrible business move but I don't want to be doing the same thing over and over again um, oh that's an interesting aspect to what you do <laughs> wow Okay, Charlie Marshall is talking to us about, uh, or about, to, you've talked to us about how you got to where you uh-huh. are now. You're about to talk to us about what it is you do working for your company, Park Office, which does architecture and design for hospitality uh, and other things. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors uh, at Heritage Radio Network. Please uh, tune in, and then uh, we'll be right back with more from Charlie Marshall. Thank 
My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. <laughs> and we're back at Roberta's, which is super awesome. Um, yeah, delicious pizza, um, <clears throat> uh, which we had just before the show. Uh, so we're back with Charlie Marshall talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, a part of our business that I don't really talk about that much. This is usually kind of Damon's purview in that we're talking about design. Um, you know, it's, uh, I don't think I keep it a secret from anybody. Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm colorblind, uh, red-green colorblind, which is the most common version of that. Uh, 11% of all men have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for, because of that, it really diminishes my, uh, I don't know what the word here is, concern mm-hmm. over, over design. You know, Damon and I have these philosophical talks about how he chooses even bottles to put on his back bar based on their design, the shape of the bottle, the color of the glass, the, 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 the labeling. You know, I'm certainly there's some of that that appeals to me, but I think, I think, and this is just a hypothesis, I think that my colorblindness leads me to care less about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But through dealing with Damon uh, as a friend and a colleague and, and my co-host on the show for as long as I have now, I've really tried to be a little bit more aware of that stuff. Um, because it, it, it matters. Yeah. It has a massive impact on people. Huge. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, I, function over fashion kind of guy. It feels more so, more so now, especially from clients. But as we get into a world, especially with things like, you know, uh, Pinterest and then, and then Gotta get them Instagrams. Grams. Yeah, man. So you went to art school. You created this design company here in America with your mm-hmm. partner. And he's an architect, right? He is an architect. He's a real proper architect. Yeah, yeah. I say that purely because it's a, it's an onerous process. Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, that, that's a real deal. Yeah, talking to him about architecture school in comparison to me at art school, it feels like right. I you guys definitely picked the right one. <laughs> you guys are on lunch break all day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... How does it go? People come to you, you go to them. Where does it begin? And what sort of projects have you worked on? So um, my business partner, Will, uh, he has a much more sort of uh, storied architecture background, but he also went into branding work, uh, into into that realm of branded environments. I think branded environments is a sort of broad term for what we do. Uh, And that could be anything from a small cafe through to like a, you know... Disneyland is a branded environment. Sure. Um, the projects come to us through a mix, mixture. It tends to be that we get, we're a kind of relatively small firm where we are known as the like, people to call when you have a slightly odd problem. It tends to be. Um, uh what sort of problems? <laughs> um, so that that tends to be either that you have an idea that you haven't fully fleshed out yet. I mean, some of the big architecture firms, some of the big hospitality groups want a more straightforward process. I think we are willing to chop and change our process quite a lot more than other, other people are um, mm. because it keeps us interested. And I think we can adapt to certain clients better than others in, in that our process is slightly more tailored Client to client. Well, this is true of, I think, uh, many fields, certainly mm-hmm. mine as well. If, yeah. if the smaller your space, the more sort of agile and dynamic you can be. Right. Right. So you're not you're, just in the groove of doing one <clears throat> of your big thing, and if you go off the rails, it knackers the entire process. Right. Um, but projects come to us. Um, we, we do sort of spend quite a lot of time and energy talking to people. I mean, it's the biggest one. Um, and quite a lot of our stuff, especially when it comes to hospitality, comes through old connections. Uh, projects that we worked on and back at other firms where they are looking at refreshing a space or making a uh, or creating new venues um, then it tends to be that we are working alongside an architect of record who is doing the sort of core and shell work the sort of big physical aspects of the building we're looking at the things that Will and I, I think, approach differently and I think a reason that we work well together is the combination of Will's Will sort of sits at either end. He's technically very knowledgeable around architecture, and he also has, I think, a much more refined aesthetic than I do. Um, I think that I come towards hospitality projects with a lot more experience of physically working spaces 
Um, <laughs> and being in those spaces. And being in those spaces. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you bring the notion that like I've been to a lot of bars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've been to a lot of bars. I've worked. I've worked in a lot of spaces, a lot of kitchens, a lot of that kind of stuff. A lot of that actually comes from the Coca Cola era, where Coca Cola was paying us to do quite a lot of consulting for the Dardens, the McDonald's, the you know the big brands where coca-cola is sold and a lot of that was sort of technical logistical aspects of like how do you make rest- sure didn't you uh, do i remember you telling me you, you were doing something with coca-cola and cruise ships at one point or uh coca-cola uh never cruise ships uh the current project that we've just uh we're just in in the midst of is is on a cruise ship and that's an interesting set of uh of sort of an opportunities and constraints that we've not felt before, uh, especially around materiality, um, because everything has to be so fireproof that you could effectively take a blowtorch to it. Um, (laughs) You know, the classic sailor's lament of nothing more scary than a fire at sea. Um, So that's, that's, that's also that it's a steel box rather than it's made of bricks or plasterboard. So you can just weld stuff to it. Interesting. Um, Coca-Cola certainly, Coca-Cola kind of all over the world. Uh, They, sent me to China to go and work on projects. They sent me to Paris. They sent me uh, across Europe, across um, across the US. I think that was an amazing one for me when I was relatively new to the US, being given the opportunity to- Big, isn't it? It's damn big. <laughs> it's big and it's different. Uh, it's big and it's different all over, which I think is something that most people from Europe don't have, an, uh, have the opportunity to have an appreciation of. Uh, spent a lot of time in Atlanta. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of time in Atlanta. I spent a good deal of time yeah, there, too. Yeah, exactly. It's all right. We lived. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, those, those projects that we have, it tends to be that we are working at the more strategy end of what is a brand that a company wants to do. If we're working with somebody like Starwood, who, you know, own a ton of different hotel brands, we've worked on creating some of those brands or shifting the main focus of those brands. So one of our big projects was with uh, Le Meridian, switching it to much more of a art-focused space, um, creating venues within um, the idea of what some of those venues would be and then doing an execution of it. That execution of it was in uh, is in Istanbul. It's the Le wow. Meridian Istanbul. So we did all of the F&B spaces in that hotel, which was a great opportunity to sort of do that, that everyone says through the line aspect of taking it from an idea through to a physical space and then a playbook for the next team to go and create their own version you know if it's focused on art it should be about whatever is local and whatever feels right for that space so if you say this is the art that we use we're starting in istanbul right the next one's going to be tallahassee it's going to feel out of place (laughs) so it's got to you know how much of that you can set in stone and how much of that you can allow for another design team to bring what they want to it there's no you know i think an awful lot of it is making sure that it feels right for the clientele and it feels right for the location it's in yeah the client and of course the final user the person who's going to be in that space needs to feel comfortable and feel like they're not out of place absolutely and that the space isn't out of place unless it's meant to be yeah yes um, and I think the, there's a there's a sizable chunk of our design process which is around sort of really quite specific practicalities of making sure that service staff can walk through a venue without like clipping their hip on every single table. Or uh, yes. well, you know all of those things that as an 18 year old I wanted to go in there with a sawzall and like just chop off bits of bars. Yeah, it's quite nice to be able to now, you know take a 45 degree corner to every single table in a venue sure no sharp edges yeah yeah because you're gonna get hit by that so all of those little things i think that having um a design team that's also i want i want to make sure that every single one of my designers in my studio has worked in a worked in a shop at some point was like sold somebody a bag of chips or something Sure, been in a space and moved through it, and <coughs> understands how it, yeah. how how one moves through a space like that. How do you how do you so these are the big boys? How do you deal with the little guys? Because you and I almost did a project together. Yeah, uh, and I loved the way that you approached me with those cards that you guys do. I'd never seen that in my life. Yeah, I think that's. And I think that's such a. 
I don't know. Is that a is that a new way people are doing things, or you, did you guys pioneer that sort of move? No, I mean I think that, that is a I think it's a modern method for getting to a getting to a, an aesthetic, getting to a vibe. Basically, we have these sort of mega stacks of cards of things that interest us, and they range from it could be yeah, they're like picture postcards. Yeah, basically 60, <clears throat> 60 different kinds of tiles, and it's not necessarily about what that exact product tile is. It's about a look. Is it a beaten up old tile is it a really super glossy tile is it a rich color is it a light color you know trying to get as much uh, as many options as possible basically it's physical pinterest um yeah but it is a super quick way to at the end of a very first or possibly second meeting have a collective vision of what a space should be um you know you tend to come into hospitality design with a good idea of a floor plan you have a rough, you know, you tend to have a physical space. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's very much concept and then you go and find a space for it. <clears throat> but um, it tends to be those sort of, those two aspects. You have a physical space and you want to imbue it with some personality, some vibe, some uh, an aesthetic that is a combination of the vision of the proprietor, but also uh, the practicality and the skill of the design team sure don't hire a designer if you know 100 percent exactly what you want to do right if you if you're not willing to be part of a design process don't hire a designer right just get a draftsman it's what many many an old building that's how many an old building was done Sure. I really enjoyed the process. We didn't get to go forward with the project, <clears throat> but I just remember Excellent. you... you Yeah, yeah. yeah There's always something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I just remember you brought me this massive stack of cards, mm-hmm. and they were kind of busted into sections. Mm-hmm. Like you said, sort of tiles and like wood and... Floors like, or, you know, yeah, light, seats or spaces. Light fixtures. Or... And you just made me go through each massive stack pretty quickly. Real. It was like... As fast just, as possible. Sort of flipping them out at yep. me and going, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. Yeah. And then we had the piles of yes, no, and I think there was a maybe pile. Yeah. And then and we went through each stack, and then we piled that all together, and we went through it again with that yes, no, maybe. Yep. And then one final time, and then so- suddenly we had this like, then in a 30-minute process, yeah. we had this kind of gorgeous notion of what the space was going to look like. Yeah, we kind of go for a sort of <clears throat> uh, Hockney-esque collage, physical collage almost, like you put the... Put the flooring at the bottom and you put the wall pictures on the sides and sure. put the windows on the other side and you put the bar in the center at the back and you kind of create a collage vision of what this space could be and i think that there's a little bit sometimes there's a bit of uh leading of the hand you know you go through that a second one being like are you sure you didn't like that one are you, are you, sure you? you know right that, that fourth card that one particular one that everyone here loves and if somebody says no a second time you're like all right well they just don't right or can we convince you or like and how do we help Steer that and tweak that along with, uh, along with the client. Make sure that that is a, uh, that you set off on the right foot. You work from a that sort of collective vision of what a space should. You you get that vibe immediately. Yeah, because it's powerfully important. I think you know. Frankly, I got lucky with Amori Margo in that the, a good chunk of what it is was there when we got there. Right, and we just changed the color scheme. Designed uh, by an old friend of mine. I didn't know that. Yeah, Miguel Calvo. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we just changed the color scheme, but people resonate with that space mm-hmm. in such a way that I, I actually I give a talk called The Psychology of the Room. I give it at uh, all kinds of seminars, mm-hmm. and, and, and one of the first things I talk about is just people coming in and interacting with the space itself. And I bring clients to your bar. Oh, wow. That's flattering. To show, them, to show them about how it's not about I, my space is too small, my space is too big, my space is too this, my space is too that. It is tailoring to the best assets that you have available to you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> and on, you know, sort of, I used to do these sort of retail tours where I'd take retailers around a bunch of different spaces and, and explain to them, like, ask them what they think works, what they think don't, doesn't work, explain from a design and architecture perspective what we feel works, what feel what doesn't feel like it works. So certainly for the hospitality trade, Amor is definitely a, definitely a, a sort of peak spot on that because it's a really interesting space. Yeah, uh, you know, even just the, the actual physicality of mm-hmm. the bar itself, people like to walk up to the bar and they 
they'll like they'll like rub mm-hmm. their hands on the bar like they're massaging it. Like How I, do you feel about that tile on top of the bar? I fucking hate it. Right, <laughs> right, right. You and hate, I wouldn't have chosen right. it. Right, it's. <clears throat> I'm sure it's wildly impractical for you. Glasses, glasses don't sit square. There's yeah. a whole bunch of other issues. There's grout. That's pain in the ass to clean. Yada, that's yada, the hardest yada. thing to clean. But, it's not level. It's but but man oh man do people love it yeah so i love it for that but boy so that you know that's that's that combination like of i that. always say if there's two things i could go back and change about amori margo <laughs> one tiles out right <laughs> two i would change the name i would just say it in english right love and bitters because in that in that beginning you know year yeah tough that was tough people couldn't say it they couldn't repeat it to their friends right. they couldn't spell it so they couldn't google it so they couldn't find it right like that was a uphill battle but but boy, how's it how's it working? There you go. Right, <clears throat> like long game. But we weren't right. We weren't thinking long. No, you guys were three we, months for a pop up to sell some bidders, right? Right, right. At the very start, six months was six it. months. Sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then we tacked on three more, and then we tacked on three more, and then we said, "The fuck it, let's just go." Right, exactly. But, but yeah, uh, had we, which is again, mm-hmm. even that, you know, I, I'm lucky about that all the time, and I, I do, I, I, I'm thankful that we did it the way we did it. Mm. Um, because it was organic and slow growth. Right. We didn't open up trying to be what we are today. Yeah. We opened up trying to get to tomorrow. Right. You're not <laughs> trying to open up a thousand year bar. Yeah. Right. Which is um, like, which has, I think, a huge amount of um, sort of this grand weight. Yeah. This is going to be here forever. And I think people try and do that all the time. How do you convince them that that's maybe not the right approach? Or it's, is that maybe not the right approach? Or is it definitely not the right approach? It one of the hardest things to do in retail or hospitality is get anyone to agree to do a refinement phase. Post-occupancy refinement, which right. is a very specific term. But it's basically, you spend all this time prototyping something. If if a client has all of the money in the world, you hire a big, you get a big warehouse, you build a one-to-one mock-up of the thing. This is sort of Coca-Cola money. I was about to say, man, that's yeah. a lot of money. Oh, we, we built some real dumb <laughs> shit. We built some real fun, with, dumb yeah. shit. I'm we built with Legos over here, yeah, buddy. Uh, <laughs> there are a whole crew of people, if they ever listen to this, will laugh out loud remembering us building a drive through in a warehouse <laughs> with a road that was made of asphalt <laughs> and a car that you could drive around a warehouse in and go up to an... Yeah, you know, like, yeah. if the money's there, they're Total willing mock-up. to build up a, a full, full-scale mock-up the CEO comes in and goes, great. And then you go and build 50 of them in the middle of nowhere in Texas and see if it works. Um, yeah. But actually, allow, I mean, it's so funny that every single app on your phone is, you know, updated, what, every 40 days? Yeah. Every 60 days? Sure. Every physical space that you're in, I bet it's never, you know, the number of times it's ever been refined because... Literally, you know those things that are like every single table in a bar or something clips every single server's hip and they go home with bruises. Yeah. Nothing will get done. Every single person no. who sits there yeah. gets their, gets, you know, the, the table yes. gets hit and their water gets right. wobbled and splashes out. Right, and they'll, you know, they'll get stabbed in the stomach by a, you know, protruding thing or this, that, and the other. And it'll take four years for anyone. Or I think there's a preciousness that once you've done a thing, it's done. Right. Um, but what what other thing is that true of though? You know, I'm writing my book, and I think every time I turn around, I'm I'm going back and editing. I'm when am I going to finish this damn thing? Right, and I th- I think it's because <clears throat> the idea of um, I'm nervous to have it be done. Right. Then I can't edit it anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that there is something about this. I think architecture and design has a much um, a very obvious build process. Sure, it seems, and it also see, seems permanent. Yes, it, it has a feeling of permanence. Upon this rock, I right. built my church. It's the you know, it's the sort of classic one of you know consumer products. Like you buy a, you buy a guitar, like you go and you buy that really nice guitar that you five hundred dollar thousand dollar guitar that you've been wanting yearning after for however long. How long before you put a sticker on it? Right. How long before you deface it? Yeah. My, you know, my laptop. I will go year and a half, year and three quarters with it being pristine and then I'll find a sticker or something or whatever it is that I really like. And then suddenly the entire thing's covered. And I think that it's the same for spaces. I think it's this look of um, it, you know, we've just opened this thing and it's done. I think that in certainly in, in the hospitality trade, people who have opened multiple venues are willing to go back and chop and chain things. I think they're much. Oh yeah, man. Robbie, uh, my partner who has 16 venues currently, he will, yeah, he'll let something sit for three months and he'll yeah, right. trash it, move it, stretch right. it, which is great. He's a great asset to have in that way. Right. 
Um, you need a huge amount how, of confidence. How you do? You got to have some a set of stones, right? Right. Um, so how how often sh- is there a number of, of when that should be done? I've heard bandied around in the business that I've been in all my life that it's around the seven to eight year mark. Yeah, that's sort of very <clears throat> very kind of standardized. Yes, because that way you've gotten your money out of your investments. Yep. you've made some money off of it. Yep, and now you can spend some of that money to refresh it so that you can then make money off that investment. Yes, there is there is certainly a certain point where some of that comes from an operational. It depends if it's an aesthetic and a kind of build quality issue or if it's an operational issue. Mm-hmm. If it's an operational issue, if you see something that isn't working, if the, you know, if two servers are walking in to a swing door at the wrong time every single time, right. change it right now, right now. Take the door off the hinges right now. There's no point in waiting because you're losing money. Yeah, you're losing time. Pissing off your staff, you're pissing off your customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think having the sort of the capacity to differentiate between those two things Mm. is this an is this a truly operational need? In which case, spend the damn money right now. All you're doing is wasting time. Or is it an aesthetic choice where you're trying to make a sort of mindset shift sure in which case that's a, something to consider because you're thinking that's when it's much more that sort of long and this is the very like practical bit of me saying you know there is this really fine line between on your return on investment in in building out spaces like is it gonna make me sell another drink is it going to make me sell another plate? That's all I'm thinking about. Right. <laughs> and there's a chunk of time where it doesn't. I mean, there, there was a there was a period where I was looking at spaces in the East Village where I just wanted to open a place called Bar, and I was going to build the entire thing out of marine plywood because it's waterproof sure, and cheap. Yeah. And I was going to have three different types of drink. There was going to be a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of vodka, and a single tap of beer. And it was going to be horrible. Yeah, but it would sell a load of product. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, there is that thing of like <clears throat> laser focus, right? Exactly. You know, I say it all the time. If I, if I heard about a restaurant that opened up, and I say, hey, Charlie, I heard this restaurant opened up, mm-hmm. they're going to sell spaghetti and tacos and sushi. You want to go? <laughs> You'd be kind of like, uh, <laughs> not so sure. I want to go there. Right. But if I said, Hey, Charlie, this place just opened up. They only sell spaghetti. You'd be like, Fuck! They must be making some great spaghetti. Right. Yeah, it's going to be good. <clears throat> What's the smallest kind of space you've ever designed? I mean, Mori Margo's 240 square feet. <clears throat> uh, and, I, and I'm leading. I'm leading you with I've got a follow-up question. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anywhere that's uh, anywhere that small. Not for hospitality. Yeah. You ever designed a, a, a food truck? Uh, I, I have, but it, oh, wow. uh, it was alongside a, a team, the team at Rockwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was a, it was a very big truck. It was the truck that Jamie Oliver built after winning the Ted money. Oh, yeah. It was an 18-wheeler with a full commercial kitchen in. It was also not really... It was basically a freebie. Um, it was for his, like, traveling around the world trying to make people eat better. Eat better. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, was, it, it was he called the food revolution? Right? Yes, exactly. It was the sort of giant 18-wheeler for that. So, you know, every single commercial client in the world was like, hey, you want whatever Viking gear that we can sure. possibly ship to you? Here's all so the crazy junk you can use. It was not a... It is, was not a, it's not a food... It is a truck that had food on it and could serve food, but it is not a food truck. Well, uh, so then let's ask Ross. He's in the room. So Ross, you've got your business. It's called Spit and Roast, which it is, is yeah. which is a, a couple of food trucks that run around in in London. Uh, still just the one truck. We have oh, some just other one. spaces trading out of gazebos and tents and all th- anything we can cobble together. But one truck, yeah. And so, was there a design aspect to, to your truck, or do you just buy um, those things as they are? Unfortunately, we didn't have much of an idea how it would work when we spec'd it. So we bought the truck secondhand, and we got the we knew what equipment we would need. But we had no idea about how best to fit it in. So we ended up with probably the rotisserie in completely the wrong corner, the fryer, the wrong size in the wrong place, the oven that we never ever use. It's basically a very expensive chest of drawers now. <laughs> so, yeah, if we could have gone back, but the thing is, it took us maybe two or three years to really figure out how the space did need to work, you know. So, sure. I mean, oftentimes that, that's a problem too, right? Like, yeah. I say it all the time when I'm dealing with uh, people that I consult with or when I'm opening a new bar. I say, look, we're gonna we're gonna have our plan, we're gonna work our plan, and then we're gonna be be, be flexible. Whatever it is yeah, we've yeah. decided to build, the minute we open the doors, they're gonna tell us what it is. Yep. Right. So you have to be ready to take your ego out of it and be like, well, 
because you mentioned before, Ross, you, you, it's called spit and roast. Spit and roast. But you told you said yeah, yeah. you said we we sell about eighty percent fried yeah, chicken and about ten percent um, roasted chicken. Right. When our plan was yeah. to be a rotisserie yeah, chicken truck, right? All my mm-hmm. sort of years growing up going to the French street markets, Italian street mm-hmm. food markets, in the rotisserie, whole chicken to take home, a whole rabbit, which I loved, and I thought this is definitely going to fly. You know, people love this food. <laughs> And absolutely nobody bought it. Right, so. you're only talking to you in the mirror. People yeah, love yeah. this food. Exactly. Right. Me exactly. and you, right? Mirror? I love it. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> I like more than a roast chicken. But as soon as you start putting a bit of fried chicken in a bun, some slaw, Korean-style hot sauce, that's what they wanted. So suddenly the rotisserie's doing nothing, but we need two extra fries in there. So, yeah, it's <laughs> and a, this, an expensive And there's oven process. that's just hanging out in the way. Yeah, oh, so it's and, a very good storage unit, I must say. And, and <laughs> a physical environment where... Sort of exactly the same set of criteria as the as the uh, venue we're doing on the cruise ship. You know, the everything's got to be stainless steel, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is really expensive to weld, yeah. uh, and is also somehow more and less permanent. Yeah. At the same time, like yeah, you can cut it out super easily, and it's you can amazing. just weld something um, else in. The guy that did the fit out, he didn't. It's almost that they didn't think about the servicing, so the rotisserie needs servicing once a year, but right. it's riveted in place. So you get an engineer out, and the guy's like, so how do I move this thing? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not the engineer. Right. So suddenly they're here's drilling Nac- rivets Right, out, here's an axle grinder. Here's, yeah. uh, here's a set of, uh, a set of Not very much joined-up thinking in terms right. of the... the Right, you didn't think to build a hatch in the back of the on the outside wall did, that he could just pop open. <laughs> yeah, but actually, the person that did it should have thought of this. But you know, there we go. There's, I mean, you know, and this is one of the, it's sort of one of those things where when you see the the complete opposite end of the scale, i.e., people with effectively limitless capability and limitless budget. Um, many years ago, at McDonald's University or McDonald's Research Facility, whatever the hell it was called, sure, um, basically has a kitchen on a giant tile grid. Then the grid. Oh is, right, yeah, I've, I've actually read about this. Yeah, yeah. It's grid basically a plus or minus, I think half an inch, or it might be an, an inch on center grid. Every single piece of kitchen equipment they can fit out to the exacting nature, and then they will run a thousand orders, and then they'll move a fryer by an inch and run a thousand orders and run it, move and see it the what, other way. See, by what, an inch. see if that right. changed the efficiency. Yeah, does a thousand orders? Do you get through that four minutes quicker over the course of yeah. you know five hours? Which is, I found that fascinating to see the sort of the most luxurious version of trial and error. Sure, an economy of scale. Like, yeah. you're you're really learning a lot. Yes. Because <clears throat> I think about that stuff all the time. I The, the hyperbolist question that I, or hypothetical question that I ask my staff all the time is, uh, I say, do you know the difference between a silver and a gold medal in most Olympic sports? <laughs> it's a fraction of a second. Yeah. Do you want gold in the drawer or silver? Like, let's go for gold, man. Let's cut those seconds as much as we can, wherever we can, uh, while still maintaining our level of hospitality and our ethos. Man, this has been pretty fascinating. Um, Charlie, I thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, thank and you. thanks for having you, Ross, and Hannah thank in the you. studio as well from Spit and Roast out in London. Charlie's at the park office. Charlie, you got any uh, social media you want to talk to us about? Sure, uh, probably. Uh, Parkoffice.com uh, is our website where you can see our beautiful projects. Um, uh, at Park Office on the Insta. Get that Insta game. And that's Park, P-A-R-C, by the way. P-A-R-C, yes. It was very originally planning, architecture, research, and curation. Well. But then we realized that it was just us being super fancy. I thought it was because your office was located nowhere near a park. Right. Because I've been there, and there's not a park nearby. We have have a backyard with a smoker and a... And a little cooler for beer, though. Oh, dude, you have not told me about the smoker. I'm, well, I'll be right over. It's we got to actually. Well, a day like today would have been perfect for it. But uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so there's your. That's your Instagram. Uh, your Twitter is p a r c underscore office. Um, and do you want anybody to have your? Does anyone need to be able to reach out to? They can find you at the website, right? They can find us at the website. Yeah. Um, I would. My personal uh, Instagram. My friend uh, described it as just airports and blue drinks. Uh, so if you want that. It's uh, Charlie W.D. Marshall as well. Charlie W.D. Marshall on Instagram. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. I really appreciate you being on the show. Pretty interesting stuff, and uh, and I feel like we have more we could talk about, so maybe we'll have you on again soon. It'd be a pleasure. Um, upcoming shows include, but aren't limited to, Josh Harris from the Bon Vivants. Uh, Angus Winchester is going to be here. Uh, we got Kate Perry, who's going to come and talk to us about some crazy new rums from Haiti. Uh, the team from Scrappy's uh, Bitters is going to be in, which you know I'm going to want to talk to a lot. Um 
uh, Cocktail Colin is going to be here because he wants you to get involved. Um, and uh, oh, and look, my, I, the, I met the anniversary of me being hit by a car is on my calendar. That's oh, damn. Interesting. We'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I lived. Um, <laughs> thank you, everybody, for for letting me live. Um, Giancarlo Mancino from Mancino Vermouth, one of my favorite vermouths, is going to be on as well. And then I have one last thing I just want to uh, plug for myself, actually. I'm involved in a project called Happy Hour History. Um, it's going to be a web series, video series, uh, that involves uh, some sort of Monty Python-esque uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, graphics, along with uh, live skits and, and uh, f- uh, historic photographs and historic video. Um, and how that all ties together with a specific cocktail in each episode. And on many of the episodes, I'll be making that cocktail for you and talking to you about it. So, happy hour history. We just launched our Indiegogo program uh, last Thursday. We're already about a third of the way to our goal of a mere $30,000 to put out a full first season. So, if you want to go to Indiegogo and check out happy hour history uh, and give a few dollars, that would, uh, that would be, I'd be greatly appreciative. And we're going to deliver some great content and some great entertainment for you when, when that show is done. Uh, speaking of reaching into your wallet, I'm going to do it again. Uh, Heritage Radio Network is always uh, uh, happy to receive uh, donations uh, to keep us on the air. We're a nonprofit organization, and we run 35 or more shows per week uh, for you to listen to pretty much for free. Uh, put a few bucks in our uh, in our coffer by going to the Heritage Radio Network uh, website and clicking on the beating heart to donate. And then the f- final thing I want to say today is a, a thanks to uh, my good buddy Terrence, who stopped by before the show and dropped off a bottle of uh, Gosling's 140-proof uh, Black Seal rum, not available in America. Uh, he just brought it by to uh, add to our slowly growing collection on the new Heritage Radio Network Speakeasy Bar that Damon and I are putting together right here in the studio so that we can be a little bit more um, hospitable to our guests when they're in our space. Uh, and then maybe Park Office will come over here and help us design this room because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's due for an update. It's about eight years old. Yeah, we could certainly come and take a look. Thanks, man. Uh, All right, that's the end of the show. Uh, Look forward to having you tune in next week. Uh, Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sun in the air. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.